You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Well, good morning, church family. As Ashlyn said, my name is Joe Thigpen. I have the honor of serving as the discipleship pastor here. Welcome also to those watching online. It's a joy to continue in our We the Church series where we're seeing what the scriptures and what Jesus has to say about who we the church are and how we relate to our world, especially in this tense political season. So let me say a word of prayer for us and then we'll, we'll dive in. Father, thank you that you have given us your word, that your word leads us in all matters of life to pursue godliness. So Lord, I pray for me, a sinful man, as I seek to make plain and make clear what it is your scriptures say to your people, your church, Lord, that you would use this time to enrich us in our knowledge and love of you, help us to worship you and obey you more rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, murmurings of revolt were in the air. A foreign power had seized control of the land, and revolution was discussed in homes and small gatherings. In this environment, protests were common and would break out periodically, and others sought to make peace with their rulers. But about 25 years earlier, things escalated to armed conflict. It didn't last long, and it was quickly defeated. But as these things go, as history records for us, this only served to amplify tensions. History has shown time and again that specific uprisings can be defeated, but the spirit of revolution is hard to silence. In 6 AD, a Galilean named Judas led an armed revolt that sought to overthrow Roman rule. Judas and his followers were quickly defeated by the Romans, and to many, Judas was seen as a hero, and Roman rule was despised. Now, after this defeat, a movement of Jews named the Zealots would begin to grow in number and eventually lead to another insurrection. In 66 AD, so 60 years after that first revolt, another Jewish revolt would break out against Roman rule, this time ending with the destruction of the Jewish temple and dispersion of the Jewish people in 70 AD. The Jewish nation would never recover. If the first defeat in 6 AD was nationally embarrassing, this defeat in 70 AD was crushing. Well, in the middle of this timeline between 6 AD and 66 AD is where we find the setting and context of our text this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open or turn it on and, and scroll or turn to Matthew 22:15. We'll be in verses 15 to 22. Matthew 22:15 through 22. I'll begin in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him. This is Jesus. They're seeking to trap Jesus. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, Why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. They brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this, he asked them. Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. 
So before we work through this text, which we'll do momentarily, I want to provide a little bit more context, specifically in the book of Matthew. As we've seen from kind of our historical introduction, there's tensions in the air between Jews and their Roman rulers. But now we're right in the middle of tension between Jesus and his followers and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and their students and followers. So in, in a few short chapters, um, and really Jesus' first two days in Jerusalem, six things have happened that have only amplified or exacerbated tensions between Jesus and the Jewish people. They'll be on the screen. I'm just going to list them really quickly with their references. First, in chapter 21, verses 1 through 12, he's received praise of the people as he entered Jerusalem. Second, he entered the temple. Now, Matthew 21, 12 through 24, 1 occurs entirely in the temple. And don't think of it, the temple is just a structure that people would be inside, but it's an entire courtyard where people would assemble and, and serve as the center of religious and political life for the Jewish people. Third, Jesus, as we know that famous story, overturned the money tables in 21, 12 through 17. Fourth, he rebuked the Pharisees, again, the religious leaders, for their fruitlessness. Fifth, he, he challenges the Pharisees' authority in 21, 23 through 27. And then sixth, and finally, as if the first rebuke wasn't enough and his challenge to them, he rebukes them, the scribes and Pharisees, a second, third, and fourth time. So again, to say things were tense, not just nationally and politically, but now between Jesus and the religious leaders would be an understatement. It's, it would seem that throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus was indeed on a collision course with, set to occur between the scribes and Pharisees with the Roman Empire looming like Big Brother in the background. And it's with this tension, it's with this feeling and mood that we reach our text today. So I've broken it down, giving it three sections that we'll work through one by one. But for those of you that like to take notes, we'll put them on the screen. So first, a question soaked in flattery. Chapter 22, 15 through 17, a question soaked in flattery. Second, an answer ordered for worship, verses 18 through 21. And three, a wanting response. Our main point for this morning is our complete allegiance and total obedience belong to God alone. Our complete allegiance and total obedience belong to God alone. Well, how do we see this work out in this text? Let's start with verse 15. It starts by saying the Pharisees plotted to trap Jesus. Again, Jesus was a threat to them. He was a threat to their authority, and they wanted him gone. So what did they, what did they do? Well, they concoct a question that they think will trap him. And instead of asking him directly, as they've done before, maybe they were a little tired, frustrated, or felt like some, it was somebody else's turn, somebody else to, to take the force, they... Brought, they invited their disciples, their students, to go ask the question directly to Jesus. Their students, along with, the text says, the Herodians. Now quickly, the Herodians were Jews who likely were cooper cooperating with Roman rule. So we understand now there are two parties, two types of Jews in Jerusalem at this time. One, the Pharisees, who likely despised Roman rule, were frustrated that the Roman emperor was making claims to the Holy Land. And then second, these Herodians, who saw Roman rule and occupation as beneficial. Of course, we know from history again that the, that the Romans built roads and made travel and life and commerce a lot easier and more comfortable. After all, who hasn't been it from the aqueduct, they might say. 
So what could unite these two groups who usually oppose one another politically? Well, you guessed it, and it's seen in its text plainly, a common enemy, in this case, Jesus. And now they plan to trap him by manufacturing again a question that if answered on the surface, answering yes or no, would inflame one side against him, which would likely have led to a quick execution either by the Romans or the Jewish people. Again, what makes this question worse is also how they ask it. Look at verse 16. Teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. Can you smell the flattery in this text? Can you see that the Pharisees and, or the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians in asking this question don't really believe what it is that they're saying, but instead want Jesus to? Now, what's ironic about this statement is what they say is true. Jesus, after all, is truthful and does teach truthfully the way of God. And he doesn't care what anyone thinks in, in the realm of human opinion, but he cares what God, his Father, thinks. And he also, he doesn't show partiality. He came to, as a Savior for all. Now, the Pharisees' disciples, of course, and the Herodians don't believe this, but again, they want Jesus to think that they do. Then comes their question in verse 17 after they've effectively buttered him up. Or at least they think so. Verse 17, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The question again demands a yes or no answer. They've manufactured it that way. And this is their trap. If Jesus answers yes, remember he may inflame most of the, Jeru- the Jews in Jerusalem at that time. Just one chapter earlier that we mentioned in an overview, um, contributing to this, this passage, as he entered Jerusalem, Jesus was now greeted as a hero. Matthew 21.9 reads, Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now this was no traditional greeting, but one filled with great expectation. Many of the Jews in Jesus' day expected the Messiah not to be the one who would come and suffer and die, but the one to deliver them from Roman rule, from Roman captivity. They saw their subjugation to Rome as tyrannous. And this, this was God, God's land, after all, they might say. And who was Caesar to impose loyalty to him when our obedience belongs to God alone? We need a liberator. So you can see on one side, if Jesus answers yes here, many will see him complicit in Roman rule, likely despise him and reject him as the Messiah and join the Pharisees in wanting him gone. Now, on the other hand, if he answers no, he would be charged with insurrection by the Romans. Without a doubt, the Herodians would have relayed Jesus' answer to the governor, who almost assuredly would have ordered Jesus likely imprisoned or executed. Remember that, that revolt in 6 AD that we mentioned a moment ago, that began by denying paying taxes to Rome. So it's not hard to see that the same charge would have been levied against Jesus. He was, after all, a Galilean, So we can see likely how this could have gone. Here was another Galilean inciting rebellion just as Judas had done before him. Now, Jesus would have been justified to refuse their question. Their motives were clear. He had had numerous contacts with the, the teachers of these disciples again. But they weren't seeking truth. And they were only interested in an answer to fit their agenda. 
Before we move on in this text, I want to ask us a couple questions as we reflect on this. How, how common are motives and questions like this in our own day? We often see others only interested in building their own side, don't we? There's no place for truth or objectivity, especially when what's true challenges them or it causes them to rethink something that they hold dear. I think what we, what we would see here and see in our own day, in a cynical world, flattery, the device used here is a, the de, is a device used to tear down others and not build up. It, in fact, masquerades as a compliment when the intention is to deceive. So pushing past what we may see in others or what we may see in the Pharisees as some ancient religious teachers, let's ask these same questions to ourselves. Do you see yourself here? How many of us often resort to flattery as a, as a default, as a means to get what we want or to improve our own condition? This may look like building someone else up in public when you tear them down in private, or critiquing someone else or their view only to receive the praise or commendation of others. Brothers and sisters, flattery is a lie. It's a device used by weak and insecure people. However, what we know from the Scriptures and the Gospel is weak and insecure people. That's us. We are those. Let's not make the mistake when we read the Gospels to see the Pharisees or the religious leaders as somebody that we never would have joined. Jesus would, in fact, as we'll look at in a moment, go to the cross alone. Nobody would be with Him. So as we read this, let's see ourselves in those accusing Jesus. Let's not think that we're the perfect ones. But, as we think about these things, the promise is true that we can seek and confess our sins to Jesus and He will forgive us of those sins. So before we're quick to call out flattery in the world or the contradictions that may surround us, let's first confess where it's found in ourselves to Jesus. Let's bring our whole life to Him. And let's work to model something better as a church as we look to Christ. Now in this text, Jesus will have nothing to do with it. Jesus will model what it means to speak the truth in love. He won't flatter. He won't return, answer in kind. But he'll give an answer, again, ordered for worship. This is a, brings us to our second section, an answer ordered for worship. Verse 18 to 21 provide Jesus' response. Matthew writes, Perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, Why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. They brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this, he asked them. Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Notice here what Jesus perceived. He wasn't fooled by their flattery, but he, he saw through it. He saw their intention behind the question. How many of us wish that we could see into the minds of someone else, maybe even our spouse, as to what they, what they intend. But Jesus alone possesses the unique ability to do so. Now, and rather than returning platitudes here, he calls them out. He doesn't say, oh yeah, you too, thanks for, thanks for teaching, thanks for reading the Torah, thanks for opening the scroll. But think about his answer for a moment and, and who he's saying this to. This isn't just anyone. These weren't the commoners. These were the leaders. These were the leaders in Jerusalem, some of whom likely had the governor's ear. They were prestigious. They had influence. And how does Jesus respond? Look again, he says, why are you testing me, hypocrites? Hypocrites. He's not deceived. 
He's not intimidated. He sees their hypocrisy. And pressing on, he starts to expose their hypocrisy to others. And he, when he asks for the coin used for the tax. Now the poll tax that they've mentioned here was levied against every adult Jew. Matthew uses a specific term here as opposed to Matthew, I'm sorry. Matthew uses a specific term as opposed to Mark and Luke who use a more general term. Likely because Matthew, as we know, was a tax collector and would be very familiar uh, with what tax was in view here. This tax wasn't paid by Roman citizens, only political subjects or conquered people. So you see what's happening is this coin wasn't just some means of trade, but it actually was a point of political propaganda. A reminder that the Jews, the, the people of God, were now subjugated to Roman rule. The coin itself was likely a two-sided coin that had the image of Tiberius Caesar on one side with the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, who was the emperor, the, Tiberius Caesar being the emperor at that time. And then on the other side, it likely contained an image of a goddess symbolizing peace with the inscription, God and high priest. The point of all this is that this coin itself and the use of it was a theological and political football. Theologically, it was praising Caesar as divine, and its inscription challenged the authority and legitimacy of the Jewish high priest, temple system, and in fact, the God that instituted it. And politically, again, it was saying that Israel, the chosen people of God, were subjects of the Roman emperor. Jesus immediately points out their hypocrisy in asking them for the coin. The fact that Jesus' questioners here are the ones to furnish the coin signified their willing participation in the Roman economy. And for some, the Roman economy that they, want, they would say that they wanted nothing to do with. Now with the idolatrous implications of that coin, it's implied that Jesus' questioners did not see an issue with using the coin as means of trade or even to enrich themselves, but took issue with paying tribute to Caesar. It's at this point where Jesus draws their attention to the coin itself when he asks, whose image and inscription is this? He's pretty much asking them, whose stamp, and whose stamp is on this coin and who owns it? The answer, again, is quite obvious and not, necess not necessary for Matthew to include it here, but to underscore the point, he does, and in recording their response in verse 21, he says, Caesar's, Caesar's, they said to him. Now, this sets everything up for what Jesus is about to say, and probably if we think of this passage, the verse that we're most familiar with. And what I want us to see this morning is Jesus' response challenges everything, his audience, and by implication, us, cherished. Look what he says. Then he said to them, give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Here Jesus refrains from commenting on the workings of the Roman Empire. He doesn't pontificate on the legitimacy of taxes, the justice or injustice of the law, or the workings of the republic. He puts this political system and its ruler in its proper place. Now what we may observe immediately from this text is this united coalition, this band of people who normally would have been ex uh, opposed to Jesus, um, were only asking about Caesar. Now, after responding to the question about Caesar, he almost dismisses the premise and the crux of their question by saying, "If pretty much, if Caesar owns the coin, then give it back to him. 
But both parties of his questioners, after all, haven't, particip- haven't hesitated to engage in the Roman economy, a system fraught with false worship and idolatry. Apparently, they haven't even failed to accumulate wealth for themselves. They've enriched themselves on the back of this economy that they say that they hate. And now, as they've amassed wealth, Jesus says, they should give it back. Again, another way to put this is that you've engaged in Caesar's economy on his terms, knowing the implications, knowing the cost. Now give back to him what's his. But what Jesus wants us to see, and Matthew wants us to see, the gospel writers want us to see, is the question that was unasked that Jesus answers. Of course, Jesus' admonition doesn't stop there, but he presses his hearers to something greater. It's greater by the the placing of it in the sentence, and also it's greater because of the demands that are implied by it. He's emphasizing a greater service to a ruler that has a greater claim. Caesar's claim, after all, is temporal. That is of this world. It has an expiration date. God's claim is eternal, always, and everlasting. Jesus is not so much teaching on how Christians should relate to government in this text, but he's showing them what God, the ruler of the universe, requires of them. Now, texts such as Romans 13, 1-7, and 1 Peter 2, 11-17 speak more directly to how Christians relate to governing authority and, of course, what right governance required. We as Christians have things to say about these things, but this text is showing us where our chief obedience lies. This is the second time that God is mentioned in this passage when Jesus mentioned him. The first, the first time is in the attempt to flatter Jesus where they say, we know that you teach truthfully the way of God. What they're assuming, what's in the background, Jesus is pulling to the forefront. And the answer simply to the question of, that's assumed, of what does God require? The Pharisees and the scribes and the disciples hadn't asked that question, but it it's assumed, and then when, they, when Jesus says, give what belongs to God to God's, the answer to which is simply everything. Jesus pushes past Roman subjugation to the point of God as king. Caesar has a right to what's his, but more emphatically, Jesus declares, so does God. Caesar made the coin for use in his kingdom, but God has made men and women to bear his image and build his kingdom. What is due to God here isn't a tax or a portion of life, something that can easily be carved out, but it's everything. It's our entire allegiance. It's our complete obedience. God's claim on our lives and the Pharisees' lives and all who live is absolute. God owns it all. Now, those, and though Caesar didn't recognize it, God ruled over him. This is the God and sovereign universe. This is the God of the the sovereign ruler of the universe after all, and he's not beholden to the ruler of some earthly empire. After all, as history recounts for us, Caesar would die and Rome would fall. Don't miss the point of Jesus' words here. He's pointing us to the God to whom all rulers of the earth will give an account. He is showing us that there is a kingdom and an empire greater than that of Rome and all nations of this world. He's teaching us that more than we should concern ourselves with our earthly, what our earthly rulers require of us, we should be most concerned with what our God requires of us. After all, God's kingdom is the eternal kingdom. His kingdom is the one that knows no end. His kingdom is the one whose king is not up for re-election nor will ever be. 
And in our text, that king is the one speaking. As the preceding chapters of Matthew's gospel show, Jesus' ascension to his throne would not come through conquest or an immediate celebration of victory. He would reach his throne, he wouldn't reach his throne through an exuberant celebration or patriotic ceremony with bands and trumpets. Instead, he would reach his throne through a lonely and agonizing death on a Roman cross. He didn't come to lead a revolt to cast off the shackles of Rome or to usher in some new kingdom to be established forever yet. Instead, as he said in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His kingdom would be established by the shedding of his own blood and not that of others. By the end of Matthew's gospel, it's clear what Jesus' death and resurrection have achieved. In that famous passage of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, right before where we get our charter for the church, Jesus says what's been given to him. He says this, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. This isn't just some authority. It's not just a spiritual authority. It's not, again, just something that is, that is carved out as a certain kind of authority Jesus has. No, he says, I have it all. I have authority in heaven and on earth. And what does he do with that authority but commission his people, commission us, his disciples, to carry his name into the world, to show the world what it means to live a life to where God is king. Colossians 1:15 through 20 puts it this way. He's, Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through the blood, through his blood shed on a cross. There's a lot packed in this statement, but again, what it's saying is all is Christ. The rulers of the world will all pay homage to him. And in our passage, Jesus uniquely stands as the one who is able to tell and demonstrate perfectly what it is God requires of his hearers. He shows that God is to be obeyed even when it may cost you something. Now, in Jesus giving this answer, one that points to a right ordering of God as king and how the the earthly rulers will one day surrender all to him, brings us to our final section, a wanting response, verse 22. Look at it now. He says, when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Now, perhaps they were amazed at his wisdom and insight. Perhaps they were amazed that he was successfully able to evade another trap set for him. We don't really know what it is that amazed them or what caused them to marvel. Maybe like the crowds in Galilee earlier in Matthew's gospel, they saw that he, Jesus, was one who spoke with authority and not like their teachers, their religious leaders, not like the scribes. Whatever it was, the text isn't clear, but the next sentence, however, points to their final response. Look again at verse 22. They left him and went away. Jesus has told them who deserves their true worship and even their very lives. 
He's responded to their questions so compellingly that they were amazed at what he said, yet what did they do? They left him. The scene ends abruptly with them walking away. Regardless of their motives, Matthew's inclusion of it in the gospel is compelling and revealing. Though something may have been stirred in them, it wasn't enough for them to rethink their party affiliation. They went away. may have thought that Jesus had some good things to say or that he had wisdom, but he wasn't worthy of following, so they went away. In recording these events, Matthew prompts our response, almost as if to ask the question, what will your response be to this one who teaches with such authority? How will you respond to Jesus' words here? Will you be amazed at Jesus' wisdom, but like the audience here, turn and go away? Or will you stay and linger? Will you draw close to this man who speaks like no one else, who holds all authority? In our tense political season, I can think of nothing more important than to sit long and think deeply on the words of Jesus here, especially today. For many, this year has been filled with anxiety, fear, confusion, stress, anger, grief, and likely so much more. Our relationships have been stifled by a pandemic and friendships strained over a contentious election cycle. Recent days, maybe even recent hours, make it seem like these things are only going to get worse. But don't miss what Jesus calls you to here and what he offers you. He's not interested in you only gaining wisdom or principles from his words. He's interested in you. Non-Christian in this room, he's interested in you. Christian in this room, he's interested in you. He offers himself to you. He calls you to follow him. Hear what he says in Matthew eleven twenty nine through 30. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a king over all things, the one who puts Caesar in his place offers himself to you. Perhaps this isn't something that you've considered before. We'd love to talk with you about what that may look like. We'll have people all around this auditorium and in the lobby and people here on the right. Others may have found it easy for this time to, in your, for your affections for Jesus to grow cold. The cares of this world may seem to surmount after all and stifle your satisfaction in Christ. Stressed, you may turn to the scriptures to seek wisdom and principles, all the while missing communing with the Lord of the universe. Brothers and sisters, this cannot be true of us, especially now. Yes, the Bible does give us principles and helps us give answers for the, to the needs of our day, but its primary aim is to show us God and enrich our relationship with Him. It's to show us what God, after all, requires of us, what He alone has a claim to. And as we've seen in this text, His claim extends to every square inch of our lives. So yes, let's work in our land for the good of our neighbors. Let's debate which issues and candidates deserve our support. But more than that, let's make sure we center our lives on Jesus. Our identity is not in our politics. We confess our identity in our baptism, as we just saw, and proclaim it together when we take the Lord's Supper. Jesus is Lord. Our identity is found in and with Him. He is the one who directs our lives, and we owe Him everything. And we will one day give an account to Him for how we've used our lives. This text reminds us that the things that fight for our attention today will be gone tomorrow. After all, Caesar is dead. And Jesus is alive. 
Psalm 2 speaks of this reality when the psalm writer asks, why do, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear off their chains and throw their ropes off, of, off us. The one who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Friends, one day the American experiment will end. One day the kingdoms of this world will pass away and the kingdoms of our God will be established on earth as it is in heaven. The Jewish revolt, the Jewish revolt in 70 AD ended by the defeat, of the, by defeat by the Romans and just over 400 years later in 476, Rome was defeated. If anything, let us learn the lesson from this that nations will rise and fall, but Jesus has promised that we the church will endure. We the church will triumph. We, the church, will rule and reign with Christ in a kingdom that knows no end. These things will be true of us, not based on our merits or our voting record, but because Jesus has secured them for us. So though the nations rage, though our nation may threaten to come apart, we, the church, remember these words of an old hymn that I'll conclude with as we look to Christ. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is ruling and reigning right now on our behalf. That he's not up for re-election. That our identity is sure in him. And we pray, Lord, that we would find satisfaction in him in these days of anxiety and stress. We thank you for sending him. We thank you that because of him, we can know you and call you Father. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.